0: It's the afternoon of Saturday the 4th of July 1953 and rugby league teams Balmain Tigers and Manly Warringah Sea Eagles are ready to go at it on muddy Brookvale Oval. After kickoff, off Manly's on the offensive, getting the ball to within 10 yards of Balmain's line before squandering the advantage and getting pushed back to halfway. Then Bob Lullum, the Tigers' star winger, takes a long pass and makes a dash for Manly's line only to go down under a mass of maroon jerseys. There's more mucky and muddy to and fro, it really is a quagmire out there, and the forward play between the teams is pretty sluggish. The crowd gets most of its excitement from the battle between fleet-footed wingers, Bob Lullum for Balmain and Johnny Bliss for Manly. When Balmain's awarded a penalty, Bob takes the kick and opens his team account by putting the ball between the uprights. Balmain 2, Manly 0. Soon after, the Sea Eagles hit back hard and Gordon Willoughby scores a try, though the team's kicker, Ron Rowles, can't convert. Now it's Manly 3, Balmain 2. Then the momentum's back with the Tigers. Captain Tom Terrell makes a break, darts through the centre of Manly's defences and offloads to Bob. He has to beat Johnny Bliss, which he does, nimbly darting around his nemesis to score a try right in the corner. Pressure on to consolidate, Bob has to convert from the sideline. He puts boot to leather, and the ball sails right between the posts. Balmain 7, Manly 3. The Tigers are onto a good thing, and they do it again. Tom Terrell takes the ball, draws in Manly, passes to Bob, who evades all comers to score another try again in the corner. This time, he can't convert, but at half time it's Balmain 10 to Manly's 3. Early in the second half, there's a midfield dust-up, with players trading punches, and the penalty goes to the Sea Eagles. Ron Rowles takes the kick, and it's Balmain 10, Manly 5. Another penalty goes to Manly. Ron Rowles gets the goal, and the Sea Eagles now only need a converted try to take the lead. With the final whistle approaching, things are looking dicey for the Tigers. While they've got the ball, they're also hemmed in on their 25-yard line. Then, their five-eighth Ron Daly, breaks from the ruck. He passes to Colin Delore, who runs for 30 yards, draws in the manly fullback, and offloads to Bob Lullum, who's put himself in the perfect spot to take the pass. He runs, there's no catching him, and over he goes for the third time, in the corner again. Bob can't convert this try, but it doesn't matter, because when the whistle sounds, it's Balmain 13, manly 7. The win's been a team effort by the Tigers, yet the scoreboard also doesn't lie. Bob Lollum has scored all of his team's points. But when the 26-year-old champ comes off the field, he doesn't feel that great or even good. Truth be told, he's got a bit of a pain in his chest and a sore stomach. Bob thinks it's probably just a touch of the flu. What he can't know is that he doesn't have a virus. Bob Lollum's symptoms are being caused by a deadly rat poison, one that's already been used in numerous murders over the past few years, and this toxin is slowly making its way through his body, and his suffering is only going to get worse. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the three-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Poisoned Footy Player. Australian sport has had its fair share of controversies. In horse racing, we've seen nag substitution rackets such as the case of Irby, which we looked at in a previous episode, and the fine cotton affair, which involved a lot of beer-fueled blokes doing a bad paint job on a galloper. In cricket, Australia's been shamed by underarm bowling and ball tampering, while in swimming we've been made to answer for flag snatching and still knock swallowing. Our tennis reputation's been sullied by a star-slinging, nasty sexual insults, while the AFL's been disgraced by racism and a player-manager's sordid schoolgirl affair saga. But if there's a code that's more riddled with scandal than any other, rugby league seems to be, well, in a league of its own. There've been salary cap breaches, prohibited supplements, drugs and drinking, violence, domestic violence, sexual assault, and even incidents involving bodily waste products and animals. In 2019, the Australian Rugby League Commission recognised this problem when it announced that between 2015 and 2018, a player or players were involved in an off-field scandal on average once every 22 days. You've only got to Google rugby league scandals and you'll get a roll call of these outrages past and present, yet the mother of all controversies rarely rates a mention. That's curious because even by today's standards, the poisoning of Bob Lullum is still shocking. It started off as a mystery, became a scandal, then a farce, and ultimately ended up a tragedy. To understand Bob Lullum, we first need to know a bit about his family. Not just for context, but also because it's a really good story. Bob's father was Alfred Victor Lollum. Known as Victor, he was born in 1897, the first son produced by the union of John Lollum, who was from a big clan prominent around the New South Wales mid-north coast town of Nabiac, and Isabella Bowers, whose people were also prominent in the area. After Victor, John and Isabella would have four more sons, Herbert, Leslie, Norman and Thomas. And by 1914, the three older boys were all talented district rugby union players. When the Great War broke out, the New South Wales Rugby Union wanted young men like them to do their bit, and they announced a drive to get 700 players to enlist. That target was met so quickly that it was soon upped to 1,000 and then 1,500. Victor played for the Failford Rugby Union Club, and as the oldest Lullum lad, he was one of a dozen members who signed up in those first months of the war. With parental consent, because he was under 21, Victor enlisted on the 6th of November 1914. His military records at the National Archives of Australia list him as 19 years and 5 months old. In reality, he was a full 2 years younger, just 17. Thing was, if you weren't 18, you could only enlist as a bugler, trumpeter or musician, and Victor, well, he wanted to fight as a soldier. After training, on the 11th of February, 1915, Victor sailed with the AIF's 1st Battalion, 2nd Reinforcement, aboard the transport ship Siang-B. He did more training in Egypt, and then, just before dawn, on the 25th of April, 1915, Victor Lullum came ashore with the 2nd Wave at Gallipoli. He saw action for 12 hours before he was hit by what was described in one newspaper as an exploding Turkish bullet. In the confusion and carnage, Victor was listed as missing in action, though happily it had been discovered he was among the wounded on a hospital ship bound for Egypt. Victor had been shot through the wrist. The bullet had done terrible damage and when the wound went septic, he was soon in mortal danger in a hospital in Heliopolis outside of Cairo. Victor would need four operations to remove fragments from the wound and to drain his badly infected arm. Declared unfit for further active service, he was returned to Australia in July of 1915. Victor was lucky to be alive. His Failford Rugby Union teammate, Robert Greenaway, was killed at Gallipoli on the 27th of April. And in those first few months, two more of the original Failford 12 would be so badly wounded they had to be sent home, with three others, the brothers Bowers, who were cousins to Victor, all suffering wounds but able to return to the front. When Victor and his mates had enlisted, they had no idea what they were in for. But as reports of the slaughter at Gallipoli made the newspapers, new recruits had no illusions about the dangers of this great war. Failford Rugby Union players weren't put off by this, though, and they enlisted in ever greater numbers. By October 1915, some 44 men had signed up from this tiny club that had only been in existence for three years. One of them was 17-year-old Herbert Lullum, the second of John and Isabella's sons. As for Victor, his war seemed to be over. With his right arm paralysed, he was discharged with a modest war pension in January of 1916. On the 29th of May that year, he escaped death again when, as described by the Maitland Daily Mercury, he was bumped by a coal train. Victor was taken to Maitland Hospital suffering a scalp wound and shock. With his little brother Herbert fighting on the Western Front, Victor was itching to get back into battle. His wrist had improved enough that on the 12th of March 1917, he enlisted again and was able to pass the initial physical. What Victor didn't know was that on that very same day in France, Herbert had been killed in action during an enemy bombardment. The Lullam family received this news as they were preparing to farewell Victor for a second time. On the 31st of March 1917, the Maitland Mercury reported of Victor, quote, He went to Gallipoli, was invalided home in due course, recovered his health, and now Oliver Twistlike is ready for more. The people of Willamba, Baladila, and the Manning are showing their appreciation of this plucky soldier by making a presentation to him at Nabiak on Wednesday night next. A month later, Leslie, the third Lullum boy, enlisted, and he was just sixteen. Just over a year later, on the Western Front in May of 1918, young Leslie would be gassed and suffer a severe gunshot wound to the thigh. It'd take him nine months to recover in hospital before he was fit enough to be shipped back to Australia. As it turned out, Victor Lullum didn't make it to the Western Front. His wrist was actually in such bad shape that he was honourably discharged towards the end of 1917. The Lullum family story is one of service and sacrifice, and that was going to continue in World War II. In terms of Bob Lullum's existence, though, his father's early life was a series of close calls. Had that Turkish bullet followed a slightly different trajectory? Had the coal train done just a little more damage? Or had his wrist not saved him from the carnage of the Western Front, Victor might not have lived to marry a bank assistant named Isabel Murray at the end of 1922. On the 9th of December 1923, Isabel gave birth to twin boys. They named them Herbert, likely after Victor's dead brother, and James, perhaps for her father and brother. Sadly, their newborn son James lived for just one day. The couple's second surviving son, Robert John Lullum, known as Bob, was born on the 2nd of November 1926. Victor supported his family by working as Tuncurry's postmaster, and his arm had improved enough for him to play rugby through the 1920s. This sometimes pitted him against his younger brother Norman, who'd been too young to serve. In September 1929, when the final match of the season was played at Wingham, Victor was captain of the Manning League, while his brother Norman was captain of the Upper Manning League. It must have been fun for Victor's sons, Herbert, then five, and Bob, nearly three, to watch their dad and their uncle playing brilliantly, which was how a local paper recorded their form that day. Bob went to Tunkari Primary School and then to Taree High. A sepia photo from around 1940, which is held by the Foster Tunkari Great Lakes Museum, shows him posing with a racket, wearing a sports jacket, collared shirt, dress shorts and sandals. Though still a teenager, he was a handsome young sportsman with a top-notch head of sandy hair. During his high school years, Bob rated a few local newspaper mentions for his athletics ability as a sprinter. In 1940, for instance, he won his school's 100, 220 and 880 yard events. And that speed also served him well as a rugby league player throughout his school life. As the Manning River Times newspaper would later put it, quote... Ever since Bobby was a white-headed little boy, he has kicked the football and was always the fast man of the public school team and later in high school. Bob's brother Herbert was athletic too, but as he was three years older and with another war on, he'd followed in the bootsteps of his father and uncles by enlisting and he would see action as a gunner in New Guinea. Too young to be in uniform, Bob started an apprenticeship as a boilermaker in Newcastle. On weekends, he played rugby league for the Central Newcastle junior side and in 1944 was named its best player. The following year, with Newcastle Central first grade side, he was the team's top point scorer and he also played for the city in its representative side against Goulburn. In July that year, the Lullam family suffered another war tragedy when Bob's young cousin Leslie, son of his uncle Tom, was killed in action at Balakapan. Leslie was only 18, had only recently enlisted, and died just one month before the war against Japan ended. After another season with Newcastle Central, Bob in early 1947 headed to Sydney to try out for the Big League. His people had connections with the Five Dock area, it was where Leslie had lived before he signed up, and so Bob tried out for the Balmain Tigers. The 20-year-old was good, really good. Bob was as fast off one foot as the other, and he made such an impression in his first minor trial against Wests on the 16th of March that the Balmain coach declared him, quote, the find of the season. That led to his selection in the first grade team for the next trial against Souths at Gladesville Oval. The Tigers won 18-2, and Bob was featured in an action-packed Daily Telegraph photograph where he was being tackled. There was a lot more press to come the following weekend when Balmain played Canterbury-Bankstown in a final pre-season trial. Bob was electric and instrumental to the Tigers' winning 20-14. The Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, The fastest player on the field, he scored two tries. His brilliant defence saved two tries but a Daily Telegraph description gave readers a better taste of what Bob could actually do. Quote, scored one of the best tries of the trial series. He caught a difficult pass from Fred DeBellin, 70 yards out, broke through three tackles and finally sidestepped Canterbury fullback Dick Johnson. He outpaced two Canterbury players over the last 40 yards and scored between the posts. Bob was officially a Balmain Tiger, and he'd soon surpass... All of the high expectations he'd already set. Yet the trials had come with another delightfully unexpected reward. After the game against Souse at Gladesville, he'd met 15-year-old Judy Monty. She was dark-eyed with auburn hair, pretty and slender. With the blessing of Judy's parents, mother Veronica, whose good looks her daughter had inherited, and father Alf, a gentlemanly bespectacled figure, they became boyfriend and girlfriend, and Bobby would often visit the family house in Glebe for home-cooked dinners. On the footy field during the 1947 season, Bob Lullum was a scoring machine. In May, he got four tries in a game that saw Balmain slaughter St. George 34-2. This form saw selectors choose him for the city side when they played country in June and Bob scored two tries to help the team win 33-10. Next, Bob was selected to represent New South Wales against Queensland and on the 14th of June at the Sydney Cricket Ground in front of nearly 40,000 people in his state representative debut, Bob scored a try that contributed to New South Wales' 29-15 victory in a series that would see them beat Queensland 2-1. Yet, when the Sydney Rugby League season was halfway through, Balmain was struggling in the middle of the table. That's because despite Bob's brilliance, they'd only won half of their games. Then came a wicked winning streak, seven on the trot. On the 2nd of August, Balmain played Parramatta at Leichhardt, with Bob scoring five tries in what was a runaway 47-14 win. The Sun newspaper reported, quote, Always dangerous when in possession, he gave a brilliant display and thrilled the crowd each time he handled. In weeks to come, Balmain inched up the league table as Bob went over the line again and again. While he'd been too young to go to war, Bob was a fighter, and this was noted by rugby league writer W.F. Corbett in his On the Blind Side column on the 12th of August 1947. Quote, Balmain winger Bob Lullum has raised his total tries for the season to 23. A 20-year-old, quite-mannered Boilermakers assistant, he got two of them on Saturday, the second winning the game. It was a display of outstanding gameness when he hobbled back on the field with a bruised shin to go hard with the ball for that victorious try. By the end of the season, Balmain was second to Canterbury-Bankstown. The teams faced off in the final on Saturday the 13th of September 1947. The Tigers beat the Bulldogs 25-19 with Bob scoring one incredible try. W.F. Corbett recorded it this way, quote... Lullum burst through from the left wing, scooped up the ball and moved a terrific rate downfield, outdistancing all pursuit to score a brilliant try wide out after a run of 55 yards. It brought a terrific roar of appreciation from the big crowd. This was a brilliant try, but it wasn't just a brilliant try. It was Bob's 28th try of the year. This was more than any other Balmain player had scored in a season since the club was founded in 1908. It was also an all-time rugby league record for a first-grade winger. And Bob had set these records in his debut year. Sydney's The Sun newspaper ran a headline, Try record to flying league star. Quote, Lullum, an unknown country player at the start of the season, has captivated the public fancy. He runs hard and changes direction without losing pace. While the Bulldogs had gone down in the final, they weren't done because they were able to exercise their right of challenge, which meant the teams faced off the following week in the grand final. The Tigers won again, 13-9. This time, though, it was test captain Joe Jorgensen who scored all of Balmain's points. And though Bob didn't cross the line, WF Corbett did note he won one pivotal chase for the ball that, had he lost it, might have resulted in a Canterbury try that, if converted, would have cost them the game. In early October 1947, Bob got his first taste of overseas play when, as New South Wales champions, Balmain went across the Tasman to play New Zealand's Mount Albert Club, which had won the Kiwi competition that year. The Tigers won 16-11, with Bob scoring three of four tries. Meanwhile, Bob's big brother Herbert had, unlike his namesake, survived the war, and he was also playing football for the foster Tuncurry team. Herbert was good enough that he made the Newtown Jets first grade lineup, and so in the 1948 season, he and Bobby, like their dad and uncle 20 years before them, found themselves on opposing footy teams. Herbert was a handy winger, playing 13 first grade games and scoring 8 tries, but he wasn't in Bob's class. Bob's class was such that in June 1948, he was selected for the Australian team to tour England, Wales and France at the end of the year. While his dad, uncle's brother and cousin had served their country in khaki uniforms, Bob would be able to say he'd done Australia proud in the green and gold jersey of the Kangaroos. His colour footy card from this tour shows his handsome smiling face, crowned by that trademark bouffant of fair hair. Bob would be in Europe for about six months, during which time he and Judy wrote to each other faithfully. The Kangaroos had a mixed tour. They won their games against Wales and France, but lost all three tests to Great Britain. Even so, Bob acquitted himself well. He finished the series with a try in the third test against Great Britain at the end of January 1949. And that try, and the fact that he'd scored another 10 in games against club sides, led London's Sporting Chronicle to predict, quote, surely is to be one of the main menaces when Britain tours Australia. Back in Australia in March 1949, returning kangaroos, including Bob and fellow Tiger Fred de Berlin, caused a bit of an uproar when they demanded a £200 a year guarantee from their clubs. At the time, players were paid a cut of ticket sales rather than the huge salaries they enjoy today. Balmain had recently lost a lot of players. Some had been poached by other clubs and some had retired. Thing was, the Tigers couldn't afford to lose Bob and Fred, and so the club gave in to their demands. This was a clear indication of Bob's power, just as rugby league was becoming more of a business. But things didn't always go his way. Six months later, on Sunday the 31st of July 1949 in Brisbane, immediately after New South Wales had trounced Queensland 33-13 for a clean sweep of the interstate series, the Kangaroo team to tour New Zealand was announced. Everyone was shocked when Bob wasn't selected. What made it so bewildering was just that afternoon he'd scored three tries for New South Wales and he'd tackled tirelessly. Good sport, Bob told The Daily Telegraph quote, "It is a good team, but naturally I am disappointed at missing out. His patience was further tested the following year when he missed out on playing for Australia when England toured. W. F. Corbett was puzzled by this, writing in July 1950 quote: "Why he is still being discarded in the big time beats me. I haven’t seen a winger here who would worry England so much. And it wasn't like Bob's form had slipped, as evidenced by a Daily Telegraph headline that same month, quote, Lullum helps Balmain to keep on winning. The article reported how he'd scored three tries against North Sydney, including one that saw him intercept a pass on the halfway line and run 50 yards to score. Bob was enduring bewildering disappointments in his representative sporting career, but at least off-field, life was good. Though he'd done his apprenticeship as a boilermaker and worked steadily in the trade, he now took a chance on being his own boss by starting a trucking business. Meanwhile, Bob had proposed to Judy on her 18th birthday, and they married on the 3rd of November 1951 at St. Mary's Cathedral. Her dad, Alf, loaned them a substantial amount of money to build their dream home in Suburban Ride, though Judy took a job because she was determined to pay back the money as fast as she could. On field, disaster struck Bob on the 8th of March 1952 at Redfern Oval during a Balmain trial game against Canterbury-Bankstown when he tore ligaments and injured cartilage in his right knee. The Sun newspaper headline on the 9th said it all, quote, out for the season. But he'd see about that. While he recovered, Bob and Judy moved into their new home in Ryde at the start of June 1952. But he wasn't the only one in the family having health problems. His mother-in-law Veronica hadn't been in a good way, and in time she'd have to have a serious operation. Just as distressing was the fact that she and Alf were separating. So Veronica moved in with her daughter and Bob until she was fully recovered and able to sort out her living arrangements. If there was a staple of 1950s comedy, it had to be the mother-in-law from hell joke but this wasn't the case at all with the Lullams. Veronica had always been supportive of Bob and Judy, and they were happy to take care of her during her illness and emotional turmoil. The three of them lived as a happy family unit, with Veronica helping out by preparing meals and doing the laundry and ironing. Bob, who'd been written off for the whole season, was back on the field by the middle of June, when he scored all the points, one try and three goals, for Balmain Reserves in a draw against North Sydney. Two weeks later, Bob played with Balmain Reserves against St George. He again scored all the team's points, two goals, and after the game was a last-minute inclusion in the first-grade side, scoring a try during their convincing 20-5 win over the Dragons. Two great games played back-to-back. Bob Lullum was back, and back in top form. In the last match of the season, Balmain trounced East's 59-8, with Bob scoring four tries. The Tigers ended up fourth that year because, due to the absence of Bob and other star players early in the season, they'd chalked up a series of losses it was impossible to come back from. In early 1953, Bob announced a big change. He'd been poached to coach and play for the Cunna side in Queensland. It was a sweet deal, £25 a week and free accommodation for him and Judy. Whether he really intended to go through with this or not isn't known. After all, he'd be giving up his home, business and his beloved Tigers. And if it was a ploy, it certainly worked. Balmain couldn't afford to let him go, and the club made an offer that, while not made public, was attractive enough for Bob to accept. Early in the 1953 season, Bob suffered further injuries, a bruised shoulder and torn cartilage in that right knee, and required treatment from rugby league's doctor, Len Greenberg. Dr. Greenberg, who was a Macquarie Street specialist, had formerly been Balmain's medico and he was also physician to Judy and Veronica, having performed the latter's operation. Bob was soon back on the field, but there was trouble brewing on the home front by June of 1953. Veronica had observed that he was coming home late from training and she noticed lipstick on his collar. She'd also observed that a pretty young woman named Gwen Stewart seemed to be at every one of his games. Veronica raised her concerns with Judy and with her son-in-law. Bob said he had no idea how the lipstick got on his collar and that he had nothing to do with Gwen Stewart. Judy trusted him and that seemed to settle it. But on Friday night, the 26th of June, as they were about to listen to the second cricket test broadcast on radio from Lords, Veronica told Bob that Judy wasn't as happy as she should be. Bob replied by saying he thought that everything had been sorted out and said he was going to go and wait Judy right then and there so they could clear the air. Veronica said no, let her sleep. Had Bob talked to his wife on that night, all of their lives may have turned out very differently. The next day, Balmain played Easts, and it was a nail-biter, with Bob scoring a try, but the Tigers went down 16-14. The following Saturday, the 4th of July, as we heard earlier, Bob had a blinder when he scored all of Balmain's points in their 13-7 victory over Manly. The Rugby League news magazine commented, Bobby is now playing the football that gained him international honours. Nagged by those chest and stomach pains when he came off the field, Bob went home and had a good night's sleep. The next morning, Sunday the 5th of July, after a bit of a lie-in while Judy went to church, Bob headed up to Gosford where Balmain played Central Coast and beat them 35-8. Even though Bob's pains hadn't subsided, he kicked 7 out of 9 goals that day. Over the next week, his symptoms didn't abate. They actually worsened and he now had pins and needles in his feet. Although he was in increasing discomfort, Bob's form didn't slip. Playing St. George at Leichhardt on the 11th of July, Balmain were trailing 12-8 with 12 minutes left on the clock. Truth newspaper reported, At this stage, Saints were playing great football. Quote, It was then that plucky ex-kangaroo Bobby Lullum went over for a corker try for the locals. Lullum landed the goal from the touchline to put Balmain in front 13-12. In the next 10 minutes, the Tigers added three more tries and Bobby kicked two more goals to win 26-12. He'd scored 17 of his team's points. That victory meant that Balmain was in with a chance at making the semi-finals. But now Bob was feeling increasingly sick. So much so that he sought out Balmain's team doctor, who diagnosed an ulcer as the cause of his stomach pain and said that nerves were to blame for his other symptoms. The doc wrote Bob a prescription for some tablets, and Bob showed up to training faithfully on Tuesday and Thursday night. On Saturday the 18th of July, he was in a bad way before playing Canterbury-Bankstown at Leichhardt. His stomach and chest were sore, his legs felt heavy and numb, but he also had the sensation of pins and needles. Though he felt terrible, Bob also felt that he had to take to the field. He couldn't let down his teammates and his fans... Not when Balmain's semi-final hopes hung in the balance. But as the game progressed, Bob, who'd been so brilliant over the past weeks, now seemed like a different man. He missed three easy goals, his defence was sluggish, and when the Bulldogs' winger made a dash just before half-time, Bob couldn't catch him. And the bloke scored a try to give the Bulldogs a 3-0 lead. During the game, when Balmain's coach tried to talk to Bob to give him instructions, he just didn't seem to be understanding a word that was said. Fed up, the coach replaced him as goal kicker, but it was too late, and Canterbury beat Balmain 14 7, crushing the Tigers' hopes of making the semis. It wasn't just Balmain that was crushed, as Truth would report of Bob Quote, He is bound to remember the Canterbury game as one of the saddest of his career. Lullum could do nothing right. Gone was the old sparkle, the sharp eye, and quick hands. Time and again he was smeared over the ground before he could get rid of the ball. The fans singled their erstwhile idol out for their hoots, and one critic said Lullum seemed to have feet of lead. With the booze of Balmain supporters ringing in his ears, Bob went home to his bed and ride, thinking that he had a terrible case of gastric influenza. The following day, the Sunday newspapers mentioned in passing that Bob was sick. On Monday morning, he struggled up to go to work. Both Judy and Veronica tried to talk him out of it, tried to get him to see a doctor, but Bob stubbornly refused to stay home or seek treatment. By lunchtime at work, he was on the verge of collapse and had to return home at 3pm to take to his bed. Judy was at her job, but Veronica nursed him as best she could. She became really concerned when Bob took the tablets the Balmain doctor had prescribed and promptly threw them up. When Judy returned at 5.45pm, she found Bob still in bed. Veronica said to her, quote, Bob is not too well. He was in bed when I came home from town. That same afternoon, Dr. Len Greenberg, the rugby league's doctor and physician to the Lullam family, received a very strange phone call from a woman who sounded like she was crying. On the other end of the line, she said, This is Mrs. Wilkin. I have read in the morning paper where Lullum, a footballer playing for Balmain at Leichhardt on Saturday, was sick during the game. My husband put rat poison in Lullum's beer. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to the Forgotten Australia episode, The Poisoned Footy Player. Part two is going to be released on Tuesday, with a final instalment following on Friday. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To see photos and articles relating to this and other Forgotten Australia episodes, go to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and take care of yourself.